0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London, I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, the man who set Brexit in train makes an astonishing comeback to frontline UK politics. Two more Gazan hospitals stop taking new patients as fuel and medicine in the enclave reach critically low levels. And the
1: crises in Gaza and Ukraine will serve as a dramatic backdrop for this summit, but so
0: will San Francisco itself. The stage is set in San Francisco for the biggest international event the city's hosted since 1945. Also ahead in the programme, why air pollution in India is proving awkward for Narendra Modi's government and... If each Kenyan
2: took upon themselves between Friday and Monday, even to do two seedlings, only two at the bare minimum, we will be able to reach
0: 100 million. Kenya marks National Tree Growing Day, part of the government's attempt to plant 15 billion trees in the next 10 years. All that ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. Well, let's start right here in London, where the man many hold responsible for Brexit is almost unbelievably back at the very heart of government. David Cameron was hurriedly ennobled in order to take a seat in the House of Lords and consequently a place in the Cabinet as Foreign Secretary. This morning's reshuffle was prompted, of course, by the earlier dismissal of the Home Secretary, Suella Bravman. Well, Vincent McAvinney is a political reporter and joins me now with more. any uh, we heard from you on The Globalist earlier this morning, where you were saying, I think, uh, a prescient observation that Suella Bravman's days were numbered. Uh, you could have numbered them in the mere, well, minutes, because she's out. And astonishingly, David Cameron's back. What did you make of the morning?
3: Literally an hour after we recorded The Globalist, Suella Bravman was gone. As you said, that was expected after the weekend. It was a pretty toxic weekend in London, uh, and it was mainly put at the door of Suella Bravman for having whipped up such a frenzy that we saw and making the police's life even more difficult. But no one no one in Westminster saw David Cameron coming. It was what's known as a jam dropper moment in the trade where something happens or you, you see something in the news on the front pages uh, and you literally sort of drop the toast. Uh, because I was back from uh, Monocle and I was watching it uh, and uh, the, the the last foreign secretary, James Cleverley, had gone into Downing Street. We started to hear that he was gonna replace Suella Bravman, so it left the question, well, who's gonna be foreign secretary? And then we just saw this uh, Discovery Range Rover drive up. Who was it going to be? No one ever expected it would be David Cameron, a prime minister who had to leave office back in 2016 after that disastrous Brexit referendum decision Uh, that he would now be back in government as foreign secretary.
0: Now, look, Vince, we need to wait for the dust to settle a little bit on this. And we'll be unpacking the story later on today, of course, on the daily. I'm sure Andrew Miller will have some wry observations on this. But I immediately want to kind of throw things forward a little bit. We'll talk about, as I said, the machinations later. This is... Beyond what we were expecting, even in the kind of death throes of this Tory administration, isn't it? I mean, I can't remember seeing anything like this for I don't know a couple of decades. It's mad, isn't it? And is this not just the kind of circling the gurgler of the of the Tories? A mad I don't know even what to call it. A throw of the dice. This weird, ham-faced really? spectre returns to to Downing Street. Well, I mean, what, what's going to happen to the Conservatives?
3: I mean, in the short term, let's deal with it quickly. It sucked all of the oxygen out of this reshuffle. Rishi Sunak is making other decisions right now. We're expecting Theresa Coffey to be uh, sacked as well. There are other ministers, more junior ministers, just jumping ship. Allegations that that's because they know they're going to lose and they want now to get the best post-general election jobs that they can get. And it helps them in the timeline under the rules to leave now. Uh, David Cameron is already in the Foreign Office. He's already been ennobled by the King's granting so he can get on with the job. Uh, But it does in the long term create a couple of issues because firstly, people are pointing out to do this, he's had to be put into the House of Lords. He's not an MP, but you can be in the House of Lords and be in government. Now, the last time something like this happened uh, was back at the end of the new Labour days. Gordon Brown brought back Peter Mandelson, who had lost his seat as an MP. He put him in the Lords in order for him to become business secretary. Now, this there is a playbook for this, as as we've said, it's not completely unprecedented. The problem is with it is, is that you now have an unelected Prime Minister in in Rishi Sunak with an unelected Foreign Secretary in the House of Lords in David Cameron who won't be able to go into the House of Commons and actually face the scrutiny of MPs. He'll only be able to take questions on foreign matters at a time when we've got massive geopolitical tension, two wars in the offing. He will be in the House of Lords taking questions. It'll be down to his ministers in the Commons to face other MPs. Some constitutional questions about whether that setup is right. And in the long term, looking ahead to the general election, well, the phrase this morning is centrist daddy is back. And where does this actually leave Rishi Sunak? Because he's got now a former prime minister in his cabinet. Does it drain some of the power from him? Does it look like he's out of ideas? For his MPs in the Commons, he's effectively said to them, none of you are good enough to do this job. I've had to go back and pull an old prime minister out of retirement. So will it be a big vote winner? Or does he know really now that nothing he's going to do is going to change the outcome of the next election. So he just needs to look as competent as possible in its final few months or maybe final year.
0: Yeah, best of luck to him with that. Just quickly, Vinny, look, this is the sort of Westminster village picture. Let's take a step back. You know, as well as anyone, that we take the global view here at Monocle. What does this mean in terms of how we look overseas? Um, How the British uh, government looks? You know, Cameron, we know he campaigned for Remain, but... He set the Brexit lunacy in train personally, uh, or certainly his his government of the day back in uh, the the middle of, of the last decade. What I mean, this is terrible. It's more bad news, isn't it, for Britain overseas? I don't know what people must make of this, whether that's in Brussels, in Paris, in Berlin or in, in Washington. I mean, it's, it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Well, let's separate
3: it out into Britain and the Conservative Party. Uh, for Britain, uh, it looks like it's a sort of desperate attempt to get the hand on the tiller, to have someone uh, represent the UK who is globally known, but at the same time, you've got to remember there's not many people still in office, if any. I've been scratching my head to think about elected leaders that were in office when David Cameron was there that he might have a close relationship with. The only one I can think of at the moment uh, is, well, if you want to say he's elected President Putin. Uh, and I remember sitting in on a meeting with those two, and it was a pretty frosty one back in 2012. Uh, and then the likes of Benjamin Netanyahu. you know, And David Cameron's brand itself has been vastly tarnished in recent years. Uh, you know, he's Call the Brexit debate many pe- referendum. Many people thought he yeah, went about that the wrong way with it just being a simple majority and then bouncing out of the job as soon as he lost. He wrote an autobiography that was widely condemned. I read it because I had to for work, but not <laughs> many people did. And it was it was, was error and It wasn't great. And he hasn't built the kind of international reputation that, say, the likes of Tony Blair or even Gordon Brown in the aid sector has. What he tried to do is he got caught up in a scandal about lobbying over a company called Greensill, uh, where there were real accusations of impropriety against him. Uh, And so for that's the Cameron side. For Rishi Sunak, you know, he has maximum probably a year, 13, 14 months left if he stretches it to the max left as prime minister. He's trying to find a legacy. Part of that, he's trying to make it AI. He had that big international summit a fortnight ago. But I think he thinks bringing David Cameron back, he might just be able to and, you know, one final shot of the dice. As you say, this is maybe the kind of more centre-right cabinet that he was hoping for. He had to take on a lot of the sort of more what we describe politely as headbanger element of the Conservative Party that Liz Truss had in her cabinet, uh, the likes of Suella Bravman, who's now gone. This is maybe him wanting to say, well, this is who I actually am. But I mean, it is an incredible encore, you know, final uh, caveat to the Conservative time in office, uh, because they're bringing back, uh, you know, the original leader that took them back into power. Uh, but for many in the British electorate, you know he is a man who on the foreign policy side actually made significant errors when it comes to libya when it comes to brexit of course and when it comes to syria as well but he is the architect and some would say the arsonist of austerity coming back to view the fire after it is now well and truly burning and many people saying the problems across this country on the trains in the nhs in the education system are the are the seeds that he planted in austerity in 2010 now fully grown and ravaging the British economy and the British way of life.
0: Venet, thanks for that. We'll have more on this uh, story, of course, uh, later in the day and in the days ahead here on Monocle Radio. Just ticking towards 10 minutes past midday here in London. To Gaza now, where Israeli tanks are reportedly at the gates of a major hospital in the Palestinian territory's biggest city. This follows the closure to new patients of two more hospitals over the weekend. Staff said a shortage of fuel and medicines due to the Israeli blockade risked the lives of patients. Well, Abir Ayoub is a Palestinian journalist who's monitoring events from Istanbul and she joins us now. Abir, what have you learned about the situation at Gaza's hospitals? What are you hearing?
2: So according to the World Health Organization, they said the situation in Gaza is dire as more people are dying, especially premature babies and also patients at the ICUs. What we know that 22 hospitals in the Gaza Strip went out of service completely and more hospitals are are expected to go out of service today. Al-Shifa main hospital that you just mentioned, the main hospital in the Gaza Strip, it's a, it's a health complex, uh, it's out of service too, and it's trapped by Israeli tanks from uh, all, all sides. This hospital has 8,000 displaced people uh, with no access to water and food. They are starving, and the the hospital has 100 dead bodies, and the, according to the head of the hospital, this situation can be catastrophic because the, these dead bodies need to be buried as soon as possible. The smell is unbearable. And unfortunately, and I'm so sad to say that dogs break into the hospital to eat the dead bodies.
0: Uh, I mean, listen, it's, it, the situation is so grim and it's compounded, of course, by the slow flow, the unreliable flow even of information because of the difficulties with telecoms. And then we have lots of claim and counterclaim. There are suggestions from the Israeli military that they had offered to supply some fuel. They claimed Hamas had prevented it. And it's difficult to know where the truth lies. What is undeniably the case is that these hospitals do not have enough fuel uh, to stay open. Um how how much worse can things get it's not just about the provision of fuel we know fundamentals food water are absolutely constrained um what 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 does happen next and we can't even find the information can we at this stage we don't know who to listen to
2: well No, we know, because we are seeing uh, people at Al-Shifa Hospital, uh, when they have connection, they say that they are starving doctors uh, that have been in touch with Doctors Without Borders. And uh, World Health Organization said that the the hospital is running out of oxygen, medicine, drugs. And according to the Israeli claims, uh, the Ministry of Health in Gaza said, yes, they got an offer to get 300 liters of fuel, which is not enough to run the hospital for one hour. And the hospital wanted to receive the fuel through the ICRC and not directly uh, from Israel. So even the amount that was reported of uh, of fuel was offered um, is, uh, you know, is not enough. Also, the hospitals... They are a part of what the people in Gaza are suffering. I have my family there. My family is starving. So we know that the uh, food is running out of Gaza. People say, like, when we ask them, do you need money? They say we don't need money because we don't have anything to buy with the money. Like, there is no flour in the hospitals. There is no, um, I just hear there is no salt. There is no salt in the supermarkets, no water, no clean water. The, the water people have access to is not clean water. So if this is the case for people outside the hospitals, it should be the same for people uh, uh, trapped. In hospitals, I mean, we're talking about Ashifa Hospital, which is 100% trapped and it was targeted so many times during the past three days by uh, airstrikes and artillery um, missiles. So uh, we know that the situation is going worse and worse. We are are seeing reports every uh, hour that more people in the ICU and babies are passing away. And unfortunately, there is no imminent uh, solution for the situation because no fuel is getting into the Gaza Strip.
0: Abia, thanks for bringing us up to speed. That was Abia Ayoub uh, from Istanbul for us here on the briefing. It's a quarter past midday. Let's cross over and hear from Monocle's Christy Grady, who's standing by with the day's other news headlines.
4: Thanks, Tom. Dozens of members left Greece's main opposition party, Syriza, on Sunday accusing its leader of right-leaning populism and hatred for the left's historical trajectory. Former Goldman Sachs banker Stefanos Kassalakis was controversially elected leader of the left-wing party in September. Thailand is considering plans for its police force to work with their Chinese counterparts in a bid to attract more tourists from its Asian neighbour. A Thai government spokesperson said the proposals would help address Chinese visitors' concerns that they could be targeted by Chinese crime groups while on holiday. And a lion roamed the streets of Vlad in central Italy for several hours over the weekend after escaping from a circus. The town's mayor said circus staff had found a broken lock, fueling speculation that the animal was released deliberately. It was sedated and recaptured late on Saturday. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom.
0: Thank you very much, Christy. Now, the stage is set in San Francisco for the biggest international event the city's hosted since the Second World War. Leaders from across the Asia-Pacific are flying in for the APEC summit that President Joe Biden will host this week. On the agenda, amongst much else, America's efforts to deepen its ties in the Indo-Pacific and to confront China's expansionist aspirations. On Wednesday, Biden will come face to face with Chinese President Xi Jinping for the first time in a year. And the meeting, announced only on Friday, is now expected to overshadow the rest of the summit somewhat. Reporter Simon Marks is in San Francisco and he says for the city, the summit offers a crucial opportunity to rebrand itself. It's hard to overstate what's at stake this week for San Francisco,
1: the United States and the rest of the world. The APEC leaders are descending on this city for their annual summit. It's the first time America has hosted the event since 2011, and it comes in the midst of tremendous global fragility in parts of the world that aren't even in APEC's backyard. The crises in Gaza and Ukraine will serve as a dramatic backdrop for this summit, but so will San Francisco itself, a city that hasn't seen anything like this since the end of the second world war
4: for nine weeks in the spring of 1945 san francisco was the center of men's hopes for lasting peace
1: On the 26th of June, 1945, the United Nations Charter was signed here. It took weeks of complex negotiations, sparked by the agonies of World War II, and US President Harry Truman was on hand to herald the UN's creation. There were many who doubted that agreement could ever be reached by these 50 countries differing so much in race and religion, in language and culture. But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. 78 years later, much of that optimism has evaporated. This week, the U.S. will attempt to revive it. President Biden is hoping to use the summit to demonstrate America's leadership on the world stage and to intensify efforts to tell APEC's 20 other members, including Russia and China, that U.S. engagement in the region is here to stay.
5: Geopolitically, it's a fraught environment now things are frothy.
1: Kurt Tong was the US ambassador to APEC 12 years ago, the last time America hosted the summit. This time around, he says, many APEC members are coming to San Francisco with one principal desire.
5: Asia, defined as everybody, including Canada, Peru, uh, Chile, and Mexico, we'll just call them Asian countries for for the sake of argument. They want the US private sector to be engaged, to be investing, to be trading and they see APEC as an opportunity to reinforce the engagement of the U.S. private sector. So
1: there will be a CEO summit beginning on Tuesday that will bring APEX leaders face-to-face with more than 100 top American companies in a bid to open up some of those opportunities. But some are likely to remain closed because in negotiations over the creation of an Indo-Pacific economic framework, the White House has made it clear that market access to the U.S. or even free trade deals are currently off the table. President Biden wants to focus on shoring up American industries and boosting jobs at home.
3: APEC is a forum. It's not a place where there's negotiations that happen over trade, like like a WTO meeting, for example.
1: Bob McMahon, with America's Council on Foreign Relations, says this week's summit is now likely to be overshadowed by Wednesday's bilateral meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's the first time they've come face-to-face since last year's G20 summit in Bali, and optimism after that three our encounter was quickly quashed when the US ordered the shooting down of a Chinese surveillance balloon that Washington now concedes was not even spying on America.
3: Just the fact of them getting together is a very big deal it feels like it took a lot to get to this point in terms of high level officials from China and high level US officials going to China to talk about getting to a place where the two sides can be in regular communication over the many many issues that they have tensions over and that they should be talking about in any event, but don't expect any breakthroughs.
1: The bar is so low, in fact, that if the two leaders manage to agree to revive a military hotline that is supposed to obviate the possibility of U.S. and Chinese fighter jets colliding over the South China Sea, that alone will be seen as a big win. San Francisco itself is also looking for a big win this week.
0: There is a perception that San Francisco is this godforsaken hellscape. And I think, you know, you go to the certain neighbourhoods, you
1: might come across that. But, says reporter Josh Cohen with the San Francisco Standard, the authorities here are determined to use the week ahead to rebrand the city. They've cleaned it up, moved the homeless and the drug addicts out of the immediate vicinity of the apex summit and see this as a chance to showcase the city's glories on the world stage.
0: We want to make sure, and I say we as in the larger Uh, City apparatus is that San Francisco is seen as a city that's still beautiful, has vibrant culture, great restaurants, and nightlife, and is a safe place to go. I I think this is really a, a chance for San Francisco officials to try and let people know that people are not fleeing. And indeed, they're not. But
1: whether this city can revive its reputation over a single week is as questionable as whether America's relationship with China can turn the corner thanks to a single presidential meeting on Wednesday. For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks in San
0: Francisco. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. You're with The Briefing here on Monocle Radio. Next, we head to India, where a weekend of celebrations for one of the country's biggest holidays, Diwali, the festival of light, has unfortunately served to exacerbate severe air pollution across the country. The journalist Maya Sharma joins us now from Bangalore. Maya, tell us, what are the conditions like where you are?
5: Well, fortunately, I'm in Karnataka, which is in the southern state, which is relatively not too bad. North of India, especially the national capital region, Delhi and the surrounding states is in a terrible, terrible situation indeed. We've had air quality index readings of whopping over 800, over 900. They're struggling to breathe. It's really a very difficult situation. And this is something that happens year after year after year. It was back in 2016, that Delhi schools first shut because of pollution. Seven years on, schools are still shutting for the same reason. Schools in Delhi are shut until 2018 because they think it's too polluted for school children to go out and get to school. It's a very bad situation indeed.
0: It certainly is. And obviously it heaps political pressure on the government. I guess this uh, spike or this increase or the continuation, I guess, at least more of that situation is certainly politically challenging. Awkward, isn't it, for the Modi administration? What um, tools, what levers do they have at their disposal?
5: Well, right now what is happening is it's a political blame game. People are passing the buck. Delhi is administered has a different government itself, run by the Ahmadmi Party. And the Ahmadmi Party is being held responsible by the ruling BJP. The BJP, which rules the entire country, they're blaming the Delhi government. The Ahmadmi Party, up in turn, is blaming the BJP, saying you've got to do something at the central level. And it's it's really passing the buck. One of the reasons considered Potentially responsible for the high pollution in Delhi is the burning of crop stubble in neighboring states like Punjab, Haryana, Rajasthan and Uttar Pradesh. And while this has reduced this year, the Supreme Court actually had to tell the states, stop this stubble burning, it's making the air pollution worse. But for example, in some states like Punjab, which is also ruled by the same party which is ruling Delhi, the Ahmadmi Party, the, they will not be critical of that Punjab state government because they're a, it's the same party ruling. So there's a whole lot of political blaming and going back and forth. Concrete measures are still awaited on the ground, although there have been some measures put in place. For example, odd even numbers for vehicles was tried until previous years. This year it hasn't been tried so far, where only cars with this odd number ending could run on the roads or even number could run on the roads. But that didn't really make much of a difference. And it looks as if year after year, this is what Delhi and the rest of North India tends to go through. Well, yeah.
0: And just finally, Maya, as you said, there are some initiatives um, and I guess there are other options available. There were some bans, weren't there, on firecrackers, which is relevant around Diwali. Is there a, another problem, which is actual enforcement and the practicalities of actually trying to implement or enforce any of these other regulations? There's also just seemingly not the appetite or the organisation um, to to actually
5: try and enforce some of these measures. Absolutely. The Supreme Court has again said that firecrackers should only be burnt between 8pm and 10pm. I mean, ideally not at all. But of course, the timings were really, really not kept to at all. It was very difficult to implement something like this. And the complicating factor is that the right wing sees the celebration of Diwali or Deepawali, it's known in different parts of the country. They see it as a Hindu festival. And that by criticizing the bursting of firecrackers, which are adding so much to the pollution, they feel They have been trolling people who protest firecrackers, saying they're being anti-Hindu. So it's a whole lot of complicated issues. People want to breathe clean air, but militant groups actually kind of very angrily saying on Twitter and other social media sites, saying that, no, we have to do this. This is our festival. This is a Hindu festival. And we will burst the crackers, whether the state of the air gets worse and worse, as it does. Well, they don't really seem to care about that. They certainly don't. Maya,
0: thank you so much for bringing us that uh, update. That was Maya Sharma uh, bringing us up to speed on The Briefing here on Monaco Radio. Now, finally on the programme, Kenya has declared a special holiday for nationwide tree planting as part of a reforestation drive. Let's get more on this with our Navina Koutour, a multimedia journalist based in Nairobi. Um, good afternoon to you, Navina. Great to have you with us on the programme. Uh, tell us what's been happening. It's National Tree Growing Day. What's this all about?
6: Yes, basically all over the country people got together either to buy seedlings that have been made available in public nurseries by the government or to plant tree seedlings that they have bought themselves um, in their gardens, in public places. Um, the Kenyan president William Bruto was in the east of the of the country in a county called Makweni, where he was dressed in a forest ranger outfit uh, and he was seen uh, planting trees and so was the rest of the cabinet. Um, the target it is to plant hundred 100 million trees today. And I think we will see if um, Kenya has managed to do so later in the day.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, we were just hearing about the lack of sort of political will in India to address air quality. But in Kenya, this is a really important political priority, isn't it? Um, just remind us why it's so important, because it's pretty fundamental for the country.
6: Yes, I mean, Kenya is hoping to plant 15 billion trees by 2032. Uh, The country wants to increase forest cover from currently 7% to more than 10%. And um, it says that it wants to do so to um, store carbon and to basically combat climate change. As we know, deforestation accelerates climate change. So this is one of the measures the country is taking to slow that down.
0: Uh, Fascinating stuff. And just really briefly, I I guess, you know, there's lots of supranational organizations, WWF and other stakeholders who want to try and make communities the custodians of these kinds of initiatives. Do you think this is an initiative, just briefly, that, you know, the Kenyan public are really going to buy into?
6: To a certain extent, it did look uh, a bit like a gimmick when it was announced, but the pictures today are suggesting that a lot of people came out, they planted trees, they engaged with the environment, and I think it's um, of great value to society.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Navina, thanks for your time and for joining us today. That was our Navina Couture joining us from Nairobi. And that is all for today's Monday edition of The Briefing. The programme was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady. My thanks to them. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The briefing will return at the same time tomorrow. That's 1300 CET, noon London time. My name's Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for listening.